In the past few years, immigration has become quite a hot-button issue. Claims that immigrants from various countries are out to steal our jobs, use up our resources, or commit crimes have run rampant in politics, news outlets, and online. While I'm by no means an expert in this topic, I think that this has largely been driven by fear, namely fear of the unknown. In the episode on sociology, Dr. Brighton commented that when we see people as an other, we tend to set ourselves against them. Intentionally or unintentionally, we set up an us-versus-them dichotomy and assume that anyone who is unlike us is bad or dangerous. Yet, at the same time, on an individual basis, most people are willing to learn about the cultures and people they are unfamiliar with, especially when they meet someone face-to-face, slowly shifting the tide from seeing someone as other to seeing them as human. My name is Megan Peugeot, and this is human. My name is Akash Tiagi. My name is Andy Lee. My name is Mehri Alba. This week on Human, we're exploring the concept of race and immigration and how it factors into how we understand what it means to be human. This topic is incredibly vast and encompasses a wide array of cultures and experiences. So for our purposes, we're going to examine this concept through the lens of three different stories, those of Dr. Akash Tiagi, Andy Lee, and Mary Alba. Let's begin with Akash. My name is Akash Tiagi. Um, I am a professor of computer science and engineering at Texas A&M University. Um, I came to the United States from India at the age of 20 in 1987. Um, For five years, I pursued my graduate education in computer engineering. Uh, After that, for two years, I taught as an assistant professor at University of Louisiana in computer science and engineering. For the next 20 years, I worked at Intel Corporation in Portland, Oregon um, as a chip designer. And in 2014, I rejoined academia as a professor of practice at Texas A&M. So you uh, mentioned that you lived in India for a good part of your life, at least growing up. So what was it like living in India? Well, um, so my uh, I was born in 1967. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so the 20 years of my life, you can say that the real growth as a teenager really happened in the 80s, um, late 70s and the 80s. And uh, um, that was a time in India when families were starting to acquire television, for example, Mm -hmm. um, get a telephone connected at home. There was no internet. So the upbringing was still guided largely by family activities, playing with friends um, at school and at home, and at leisure time being able to catch up on a black and white television, which was state run uh, with only one channel. Um, And being able to talk to friends um, uh, on weekdays or weekends by phone, um, charges were expensive for the calls. So even for local calls, we had to be pretty discreet. So in the nutshell, really the growth was, I would say three fourths influenced by human interactions and um, interactions which were somewhat directed by a sight of what one is going to do when they grow up. And, you know, 70s and the 80s, there was a dawn of technology even in India, which was a developing country. Mm -hmm. But it was uh, heavily influenced by parents' desire for their kids um, to be perceived as successful to actually pursue a career in engineering or medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything else was shelved as not up for discussion in sort of way between parents and children. And so um, the growth was pretty much uh, unidirectionally centered on doing well in school um, and, uh, you know, aiming for a career in one of these fields. What were some of your favorite things about growing up there? Um, My favorite thing was being able to participate in uh, school and college activities aside from doing well in school, I had a passion for extracurricular activities that involved primarily singing in a choir. You know, I went to Catholic school growing up. 
So I, I was a member of the choir and uh, I was involved in school politics. So that involved, you know, running for elections, canvassing and, you know, setting uh, um, school policies from a student body perspective, uh, doing recitation, um, uh, elocution, debates, uh, acting on stage. Every year I used to at least there would be two or three times when I'll be in a play, you know, whether it was in Hindi or English. Yeah. And so that part was just charming because that allowed me to express myself in ways outside of typically what one does in a classroom, right? Mm -hmm. um, the other part that I enjoyed a lot and that extended into college uh, was being able to interact with my friends. And that was the only way I knew, you know, in modern age, our social interactions have changed a lot, you know, some new and some having been redefined. However, in the 70s and the 80s, um, life in India was somewhat simpler in the sense that just being able to take a break from study and being able to go for walks or being able to go and play a sport, for example, or participate in a cultural activity, there was reasonable simplicity about these interactions. And so that was... Um, I enjoy those things, and I, when I look back at them, I enjoy them even more. Mm -hmm. So you said that you came over to the U.S. for college, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So what made you want to come to the U.S. specifically as opposed to going somewhere else or staying in India? Yeah. Um, you know, Megan, I grew up in a family where um, even my parents, both of them, pursued higher education. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in both of them got their master's degrees and in the 50s and the 60s it was a fairly you know distinct accomplishment on their part mm -hmm. now the part that was particularly distinguishing for them is because they both come from farming families where neither of their parents went to college in fact I think uh, um, they probably finished high school and that's when they got involved in farming business. So the point is that even though my parents did go out, you know, get their higher studies, my extended family were still belonging in the farming community. Right. And so there was no precedence in our family of anybody having moved out of state, uh, let alone out of country. Mm -hmm. um, to make it somewhat even more interesting, the college that I went to was a sort of mediocre college, you know, engineering college. It was not, nothing to write home about. It did have a competition to get into, but it was not as tough as some of the other colleges mm -hmm. require. And so, it, incidentally, um, nobody from our college had ever gone, uh, at least to my knowledge, uh, or for common knowledge, nobody had gone abroad um, for education. So uh, thinking about going abroad was an interesting you know, thing. It was in 1986, uh, again, because we didn't have internet at that time. Uh, your, your news was really what your community thought, yeah. you know? Um, and that means you know, what was published in the newspapers or what your friends talked about. So from that perspective, there was really no precedence or a guiding hand. And um, I'm surely at a loss right now to say, like, what was the particular incident or whether it's a news I, I heard or watched or uh, a conversation I had, but something triggered me to think about going abroad for studying. And the only two countries that I thought of was United States and Germany. You know, um, Germany, because growing up, we had a neighbor whose son had gone uh, to Germany for higher studies. So um, I one time I came home and told my parents that I was going to go study abroad. And so it was somewhat of a shocker to them because they didn't know how it's going to work out. And, um, you know, for all hype that you could put in that time, uh, you, you know, if a family had only one son, they wanted that son to be close to home. Right. So... So for me, it, you know, it was important for my parents to stay close. But then one thing I have to give credit to them is that the, once they heard my arguments in favor of going to study abroad, they just did not come in, in, 
in the way. You know, they just said, yeah, we support you. I, I always thought that I would study, get my graduate degrees and then come back uh, to, you know, pursue something in the professional environment. But that's pretty much where it was, you know, nothing beyond that. Yeah. So you came over when you were, you said 20, right? Yeah. So what was the experience like immigrating to the U.S. and coming over there for the first time? It was really, um, everything was new. Yes, we did have television and we had watched, for example, my exposure to the culture in the United States was through um, annual broadcast of um, Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, you know, um, it's it's amazing like in the 80s they started broadcasting oscars live and so for us um it would be you know early early morning because we are diametrically opposite right right, in time zone and uh, and then maybe a couple of occasions where i happened to watch uh, I remember distinctly there was a movie called Footloose. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I, you know, I got to see a little bit of what it was like, you know, what Texas looked like. I think there was somewhere in Texas, or uh, at least it seemed like it was filmed in the South. Right. Um, and so that that's more or less the exposure I had. So, um, so when I took the plane uh, to come to the United States, the reason I went to Louisiana is because uh, one of my distant relatives had a friend who taught in Louisiana. And so my parents did place one condition that they would love for me to be in a place where at least there was someone right. who was reachable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything, like from the from the get-go, I still remember the day I arrived. Uh, it was really a long flight, like the cheapest flight we could get put me from India to Frankfurt, from Frankfurt to Paris, from Paris to New York, from New York to Houston, from Houston to Louisiana. Oh my God. And so I was just like, a, you know, I knew English, um, how to speak in English, so that was not a problem. But the problem was just not knowing when things are going, like how things work, right? how, how airports work, right? So my first exposure to real US culture was after finally I arrived in Houston, it was around midnight, uh, that acquaintance who has since become a really good family friend, he and his family came over to Houston to pick me up. And so here we are like past midnight and we get out of Houston and he says, put on your seatbelt. And I said, "Mm, (laughs) seatbelt? So that was the first thing, like, okay, safety, because highways are dangerous, you gotta wear seatbelts, right? And then our next, my next cultural experience was uh, to stop in a pizza hut. And, (laughs) and I never had a pizza before. And it was just so amazing. It's such a simple thing um, to have a pizza just of mushrooms and onions. But it was such a thick and soft uh, crust. And, and it was just amazing food I, I still had the taste of that mushroom and onion pizza in, in my mouth you know I can never forget yeah. that and then from that point on Megan it was just um, everything is was an experience and you know you've gone to foreign countries mm-hmm. and so you've felt it right I mean yeah. the smells the sounds the way people talk to you right yeah. everything is something that is etched forever in our minds right? right and for me being in louisiana in the month of august the august smell the humidity all of that is still in my mind i had not felt that before and then going to uh, places like kmart i mean that was yeah. luxury uh, how, how could people just go in a store and you know be allowed to go inside the shop Right. And get something because in India we had to stay on the other side of the counter and ask for things, and then the shopkeeper would bring them to us, and then we would just pay. And then every now and then we would be motivated to bargain in India, like, hey, you know, why are you charging this much? Here you just go, you walk around free. Yeah. Um, nobody's really there to hold your hand. You just get things, and all of that was just an experience. I just think that's so interesting because I think that's something that we all kind of forget about. It's like 
all of those little things that just seem so normal to us because they're a part of culture. But like, if you've never encountered that before, it would seem like, you know, something crazy or out of the ordinary. It sure is. And as you get older, you realize that, you know, at least in most religions or cultures, you feel like what you have in life now is what you make of it, right? right. And uh, Or you make the best of it. And you don't know what happens to us when we pass on, right? Mm-hmm. And so with that in mind, as you get older, you start thinking about, you know, isn't it such a fortune to be allowed, the, given the opportunity to experience a different culture? Yeah and to experience a different land, right? Because we are we are richer uh, for those experiences and those memories are for the lifetime, right? Absolutely. Um, the whole experience really just coming here and making a life, especially in the formative years, it taught me a lot about how to treat people. Once you are in a place where you can identify yourself um, in many ways as a minority, it awakens um, empathy in most people. Yeah. Um, and people who lack empathy, I just don't know how you can avoid uh, building one, you know, building right. empathy. So it feels like um, oftentimes immigrants from different countries to the U.S., especially depending on the country, um, will get treated differently or sometimes it'll be seen that like people are less than human or that they're not given the same rights in the way that other people are. Do you notice that people treat you differently now or when you were first moving here, did you notice people treating you differently because of where you came from? Um, I wish I could say that, you know? Um, and, uh, and I, I would say, so the answer, short answer is, um, I never felt that way, you know, and and I'm saying I wish I could say that is because I know that it is rooted in fact, you know, yeah. I mean, one cannot avoid but be reminded of the differences and the first difference people notice is one that is the most distinguishing feature, which is, you know, how we look, right? Right. Um, and so I would, I think I would uh, probably attribute that the fact that I have not noticed it explicitly um, to two things. One uh, is the first five or seven years that I was, I spent after coming to the United States, um, they were in Louisiana and they were part of Louisiana, which is, uh, it's called Acadiana. It's uh, uh, also the people who live there with French heritage, they're called Cajuns. Mm-hmm. And, and their history is also one of a, you know, in terms of the, the span of time, uh, they're also at least uh, relative to, you know, most other immigrants from shores, you know, uh, on our shores, right, from other countries. Yeah. Um, their history of immigration, uh, well, it can be called immigration because they actually came from Canada. Right. Um, in large part, right? And, and so... I think, I think their history, to the extent that I've read and understand, is one where they felt um, somewhat discriminated mm-hmm. against. You know, uh, and part of it was just the circumstances that brought them to the south. Right. And second is the fact that they spoke French mm-hmm. and they spoke French differently. Uh, all of those things, right? Um, right. They, the way they cooked food was different. So I felt that. That part of Louisiana um, always appreciated what it means to be different. So it was just the most welcoming place uh, yeah. that I felt. So I, you know, other than some maybe couple of uh, incidents, like if you're walking late at night right. and someone makes a remark, you know, or you attribute that to just ignorance. Yeah. And, and maybe that someone had some a little too much to drink, right? right. So, so those I completely factored out even at that instance. But otherwise, I would say that I didn't feel being treated differently, you know? Yeah. Um, I sometimes feel, like, as they say, there's a phrase called beauty is in the eye of beholder, right? Mm-hmm. And so it applies the other way as well. Is If you want to see the bad in the world, or if you want to see... Uh, not even the bad. If you want to see something, 
you know, more layered or nuanced, right? Mm-hmm. Then you will see it. Uh, you just have to be sensitive to it, right? Right. And I, I perhaps uh, don't have that, you know, underlying like layers of nuancing uh, everything. And probably that's another reason why I didn't feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. There's social stratification in, you know, a lot of different countries around the world. Um, And so you were talking about in India how there's the caste system in place. So do you notice, um, did you notice, I guess, being treated differently in the U.S. or in India uh, based on those factors? Like, um, do you think your caste uh, affected the opportunities you had or how you were treated in India versus being in the U.S.? Um, um, the answer is yes in India and no in the U.S. Um, and so the yes in India comes from that now since we are talking about caste, there are four castes mm-hmm. in Indian caste system. It is largely on the brink of, I would say, extinction, but it's yeah. a slow. So it's yeah. like there was this rapid progress that came for 30 years. Um, uh, you know, we're talking about the 20th century, the later part of 20th century. Mm-hmm. And then after that, the hardest of the feelings that people have, those are still, but they are in, um, they are going away much slower. You know, yeah. it's typical for any social phenomenon, right? Right that there's this amazing progress that happens and after that it's just a very very slow ramp to mm-hmm. complete extinction of any of those uh, biases right um so the four castes are brahmins they are the teaching class and then you have kshatriyas who are the warrior class and then the vaishyas who are the um the business class and then sudras who you know typically took jobs cleaning homes you know or serving uh, in a very menial capacity and um, I happened to grow up in a Brahmin caste but in at a time when when caste system was uh, literally on the ropes you know it Mm -hmm. was in decline so uh, there was definitely no sense of privilege whatsoever Uh, you know that part is completely clear in my mind no point in time uh, and thank you know thanks to the circumstances that we did not grow up feeling privileged um, because caste system was under assault at that time for good reasons Um, the thing that I felt was um, in interacting especially in college as I mentioned earlier in school we we were somewhat isolated from mm-hmm. such things. But in college, we had, you know, our colleagues who were from the lower castes. And what I found odd was just how much they preferred to be in their own cliques, you know, mm-hmm. in their own groups. Yeah. And that bothered me because it just seemed like something needed to be done for more integration. Right. And, you know, I became friends with a number of them. Uh, and you know I, I always felt welcome and uh, you know of course there was really nobody would say anything negative about that um, uh, either side right mm-hmm. um, I did feel have a sense of resentment and you know um, I, I mean it's a we're just talking openly about how we felt, right? Yeah. And the resentment was that um, there is something called affirmative. It's it's something equivalent to affirmative action mm-hmm. uh, in India, and the policies that the government had uh, instituted. And in hindsight, I can see for the right reasons, right. which is to bring up the impoverished communities, you know, mm-hmm. that had been ignored forever. Right. And so at that time. As a, as a person who was aspiring for the best of the colleges in India, I did feel somewhat a, a, a sense of resentment. Why, you know, a 50% of the seats in a competition were reserved for people of lower castes. And so someone who was way underqualified than me still got into a better school. Um, you know, by national rankings. Right. And, and I did not. And so it lived with me for a while um and i to 
it to me seems like it still lives in the psyche of many of the indians because those affirmative action uh, policies are still in place in fact they've gotten even uh, stronger uh, as part of again trying to really beat down the caste system right. and the damages resulting from that um but but it's only after i came here and i saw the civil rights movement and understood a little at least a deeper level what it meant and why it does not take one generation why it takes multiple generations to actually bring whole communities out of that sense of deprivation of opportunities right. now i understand and i i think i think my resentment for that policy certainly is you know i wish i could just say it's gone away completely but i think i think it's certainly at the at the brink of of just you know going away yeah right based on your life experience and just where you are right now what do you think it means to be human um you know megan uh if you had asked me this question 5 years ago um i think i would have probably been compelled to give you uh, not out of like uh, intention but just out of maybe you know lack of awareness right mm-hmm. i would have been probably inclined to give you a more shallow answer and but i i feel like the last 5 years of my life have allowed me to actually explore this uh, specific thing not in exactly the way you worded but at least something similar to that right uh, in a little more genuine way you know and so so i and this is just because i teach in a public university mm-hmm. and in public university um i teach undergraduate education um and in undergraduate i although i i started teaching upper level courses but over the years i migrated to lower levels mm-hmm. uh, you know we're talking about 200 300 level courses okay so what what it means is that i'm teaching classes that are 90 students right. uh, large and um you know as you would expect in any population uh, in a class 90 is a large number mm-hmm. uh, you know you would expect a bell curve and on all right it's mm-hmm. and so uh, the fact that bell curves are re- are real uh, you would you just can't avoid but being exposed to a diversity and extremes mm-hmm. on all ends right yeah. and the ones that have at least brought me closer to humanity are the ones who either come from very poor families you know um or come from families that are broken up or or find themselves in a situation where they have um uh, lost a really close friend you know uh, typically i mean it you know you are in your late teens you build relationships that are much more emotional and much stronger right and right. so if those relationships break uh, they actually lead to usually negative uh, consequences right? right so i've come in close contact with situations like that um i've come in contact with situations where i have lost uh, students of mine um you know one or the form or causes of death so um so um, and i think lastly i would say which is it kind of cuts across the whole student body and that is has to do with mental health so as i've gone through these experiences with them um i i feel like the answer to you know what does it mean to be human to me it just seems like um and here's where the cliche answer would come from but i believe in it now <laughs> so it's um i think to me it would be everybody deserves to be happy and everybody um uh deserves to be served you know yeah. whether it's and so as deserves to be served meaning you, you know which is also part of serving some mm-hmm. someone is getting served someone is serving right, right. so so uh, the service to our human beings that is what humanity is if you kind of boil everything down it is about pursuit of happiness
Let's move on to Andy, who has a unique story of life between two countries. Um, my name is Andy Lee. I'm a senior at ECU, and I am studying journalism and political science. Awesome. So you spent part of your life in another country. Uh, which one, and how long did you live there? Um, I lived in China. Uh, the timeline is a little messy. I first moved over when I was um, three weeks old. And, uh, then when I was three, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and, uh, then it became, uh, every other year basis where we would spend one year in America and then one year in China. And then that lasted up until I was about eight or nine. And then it was permanent U.S. Um, so what was life like in China? Like, what do you remember from living there? Um, my main memory of China is... Um, how unrestricted our lives were. Um, I know how restricted lives are for people politically now as an adult, but as a child, my mom would literally just say, just go outside and come back when the sun is down. Um, there, uh, we just played on construction sites and explored parts of this huge city that filled with people we didn't speak the language of and um I remember uh uh I remember going to the market with my grandmother and getting stared at because we were the only white people these people had ever seen in their lives um I remember uh uh nothing being clean I I mean there are a lot of weird parts of China that still stick with me I remember the smell of China and it's like it's like city smell, like mm-hmm. how cities smell, yeah. but it's like, there's also like a hint of like, like spice and rice and also pee, which <laughs> is like, but like, I, I remember I went to New York and there was this one time we were in this really trashy area of New York and like the smell hit me and I was like, oh gosh, where's my nine eye? I need to put <laughs> like, we, are, we need to get rice and we need to start making dinner like right now. What were some of your favorite things about living there? Um, We had no rules, like no rules. And that is probably more of a product of my family than it is of living in China. China. Um, But like, but, but part of it was the product of China because my mom would always say, okay, well, you can't do this in the United States. Like you can't just tell your kids to leave your house and just come back when it's dark like that's not how the world operates here but there like we climbed on like unfinished buildings and explored uh basements of apartment buildings that weren't ours and like rode motorcycles of complete strangers and and um, played games with kids that we would never see again in our entire lives so just this feeling like it it felt like looking back on it it felt it it was like a quintessential like storybook childhood of like you just like explore and Mm -hmm. like have utter creative and and emotional freedom what were some of your least favorite things um i mean we were very like uh, we were very like emotionally isolated in the same way um We went to an international school populated mostly by, like, American citizens or, like... It was a missionary school. Uh Um, So a lot of them were white kids or or Chinese kids raised by white people or Mm -hmm. having one predominant white parent. Um, But besides that, I just remember feeling really lonely. I didn't have a lot of friends um, because we didn't speak the language. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I I remember feeling lonely in the sense that, like, I wasn't close to my dad or my Chinese side of the family. And I because we didn't speak the language, mm-hmm. there was no way to get close with them. Um, it, it, it was just, compared to America, like, there was no friendship. Like, I had my sisters and I had some school friends, but, like, it was no, like, there was no best friend or yeah. anything. It's interesting because it's like even though you were a part of the culture, like you have a half Chinese family, but even so, it's like you're yeah. so separated in that way. I mean, part of that is like my mom's decision to not teach us Chinese. Right. Like there was no, there was no way to even think about forming a relationship because, mm-hmm. um, and like, 
looking back on it, we were kind of brats. Like, we were American <laughs> brats, and we expected to be treated like Americans. We expected everything to work like America, and what we wanted something when we wanted it now. And, and um, yeah, so I, I, it was a lonely time. Yeah. yeah. That kind of leads into my next question. So, like... You don't necessarily have a, what made you come to the U.S. story because yeah. you were born here and then you split your time, but it wasn't necessarily by choice or by plan. Um, mm-hmm. So what was it like going between those cultures of the two countries? It was definitely more of a culture shock in the United States. Moving to China was really, really easy because everyone, like the culture of China is just like do your work and like be mm-hmm. a part, like just, just get it. So there is no like... Even though we stuck out like a sore thumb, everyone was like, okay, well, I still have to feed my kids, so I don't don't care. Um, In America, I remember, like, every year we came back, we had, like, I had to get up and, like, talk about what life was like in China. I remember one year they made me, we were just, like, going on, like, a ski trip or whatever, but they made me get, because we had just gotten back from China, they made me get up and sing Joy to the World in Chinese. Plot twist. Didn't know how to sing Joy to the World in Chinese. <laughs> so I just sang gibberish. And they were like, oh my gosh. Like, isn't it exciting, kids? Like, you can go anywhere in the world. Um, and so, oh ex- yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, little Andy loved it. I, lo- I like, I loved basking in the, in the attention. But, like, you were, I at least, I can't speak for my sisters or anyone, but I was, like, really made into, like, this, like, put on a pedestal of like look at the foreign kid or Mm -hmm. whatever even though like I never experienced intense racism in 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 my hometown I didn't experience that until I came to ECU but um yeah it was more of a shock in in the United States than than anything else yeah well that kind of leads into um my next thing so looking at like immigration and Mm -hmm. even though you are a U.S. citizen um you're someone who, like, at first glance, I think people would recognize that you have some sort of Asian descent. Yeah. Um, so do you feel like you get treated differently being over here, um, having, like, this experience living in another country and looking like someone who's not, you know, 100% white the way we think of mm-hmm. it? I think... On, on first thought, I would say yes. But I also, there, there, there's like a long history of like the commodification of the Asian American community as a tool to oppress other mm-hmm. minorities. Um, because like specifically Chinese Americans are viewed as like the model minority. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, the Chinese people are succeed- succeeding. So like, why can't other people succeed? Yeah. So as I have grown up, it's kind of been, uh, it's been more of, uh, uh, retelling of that and trying to combat that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 most people don't view me when I talk about my story, they don't view it as like a foreign story mm-hmm. or they view it as more like, Oh, you had like the sense that I get is that they think of it more as like, Oh, you got to have year long vacations in China. Like, it's almost like a study abroad kind of yeah, thing. <laughs> there's never an association, I think, because... I mean, I do look Chinese, but I have also gotten to places where I'm very white-passing. Right. And and so, like, I get the extreme privilege of, like, being able to speak about these issues, but, like, not being able to suffer... Not, not suffering the consequences mm-hmm. of them. So, like... People don't look at me as, like, someone who's foreign. And they don't look at me, um, besides, like, some hateful comments on Grindr. (laughs) Um, uh, But for the most part, like, like, my story isn't viewed as, like, um, an immigration story. So, like, it's it's hard for me. I I have a lot of opinions on it, but Mm -hmm. it's hard for those opinions to have any validation when I don't experience bigotry or or oppression in that way. Right. You lived in China mostly when you were young so I feel like that affects some of how you view Mm -hmm. living there just because you didn't have the experience of like being an adult in there in the same way um but just in your understanding of like China and over there if you know it it feels like you know there's kind of social stratification and 
every society, I mean, regardless where you mm-hmm. are, that's just kind of a hallmark of a lot of, like, Republican or Democratic societies. Um, do you notice that there's a difference in, I guess, kind of caste systems and how people are treated in China versus in the U.S., if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it just comes down to, like, a fundamental... Um, a fundamental difference in like the identity of an individual mm-hmm. um and even as a child i kind of recognize that in china you're not an individual you are part of like a community right. most obviously most of the time that community is the family um but even the family unit is part of like the neighborhood community mm-hmm. blah 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 um and so uh, uh, the, and in America, like, we're so individualized. Right. Like, you are special and you're unique and mm-hmm. no one else is like you and blah, 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 blah. Um, so, like, it's, it's taken my, my adult life to process that. Um, and I think it, it has uh, informed a lot of, like, my current political leanings that, like, I, I view myself as, like, a part of a community and that's really difficult i i have found that that's really really difficult now as a young adult because all my other peers who have lived for their entire lives in, in america are like well it i have to worry about me and i have to do what's best for me and blah, yeah. blah 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 and my thinking is like okay well i can do what's best for me but not at the sacrifice of the group yeah. and of the blah 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 um, do you think your experience of having lived in two different countries affects how you view people or how you understand people I mean, yes, but I don't know if, like, that's easily verbalized. Like, I I just, I don't... Like, I think some of that is just going to be inherent, like, Mm -hmm. that experience shaped who you are and who you've become, so, Mm -hmm. of course, it's going to play some role, but... Yeah, I I would say more of, um, I recognize, like people's stories as inherently complex like Mm -hmm. no one has an easy story no one has like even people who like were born in the town their parents were born in that their parents were born in like that's not an easy story to tell and that's not an easy legacy to carry um it 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 it, i mean my entire life has granted me like a great deal of compassion to people who Mm -hmm. have come because my home life in in china and in the united states was incredibly rough and so it it has given me a lot of understanding of of people's pain and suffering, um, specifically towards China. Like I, I understand like people's like historical oppression mm-hmm. because China has a long history of of undergoing and and dealing out that. I I and I and I have made it a point as an adult to learn about that and to understand it. And, um, so I, I, yeah, it's hard for me to say, like, tangibly, but, but I think philosophically, yes. Yeah. You know, based on your life experience and just where you are right now in your life, what do you think it means to be human? I mean, I feel like the nihilist view, view is, like, to be human is... What, isn't there some philosopher who's, like, to suffer is to be human yeah. or something mm-hmm. like that? I don't... Necess- I don't know. I think, like, to be human is to, like... It's just to experience because my life... My life has been punctuated by a great deal of tragedy. <laughs> um, more tragedy than a lot of people at my age. Um, but also, like, it's it's a lot of joy. And I've met a lot of people who bring me so much joy. And um, I, I, I feel like the human experience is based... Is surrounded upon... Is, is The cornerstone of the human experience is relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, is already so abstract, like relationship with others, relationship yeah. with yourself, relationship with the divine, with with the natural. I, I, and I think growing up in another country has allowed me to understand that relationships look different from every angle. And um, just because that that difference is there doesn't make one relationship better than the other and Mm -hmm. it doesn't make 
your forming of a relationship somehow stronger than another person's just because they form it differently. Finally, let's talk with Mary. My name is Mary Alba. Uh, I am a 50-year-old Iranian-American citizen living in Portland, Oregon. Maybe I shouldn't have given my age, but (laughs) (laughs) I started off after uh, graduation as a software engineer and worked for about 10 years in uh, Salt Lake City and then the last five years in Portland, Oregon at Intel. And then I stayed home to care for my two children and my parents. So you spent um, part of your life in Iran, correct? Yes. How long did you live there? I left Iran at the age of uh, 15. I was, uh, it was my junior year in high school when I left. So what was life like there? Well, um, my life, <laughs> it was, um, I, I think, uh, through the formative years of my growing up, which is usually ends up being like middle school, high school years, uh-huh. it was the most turbulent time um, in my generation uh, in, in Iran. Um, uh, through the middle schools, um, it was the duration of the revolution kind of forming and shaping and happening in Iran. And then um, by my in the three years of my high school years, the Islamic extremist government had taken control and they were governing. And that turned normalcy in my life completely kind of upside down from what I was used to, which was a very normal kind of, um, I would say a little bit like conservative way of life in U.S. Uh-huh. was kind of the life that I was used to in Tehran. And then after the revolution, it was just very dramatic and suddenly things changed and then hijab came and a lot of different things happened. A lot of extreme things happen right in front of your eyes that you think, oh, this cannot be happening. This is not possible. It can't last. And as you're saying, it is happening and it's just getting worse. (laughs) So that was the, the during the years in the high school. So is that part of uh, why your family came to the U.S.? Um, yes, I mean, it was kind of, yeah, I would say the before that, uh, education, getting education, good education in Iran, I would say probably Asian culture or Middle Eastern culture, it's, it's very high. And mm-hmm. so before the revolution, my parents had sent my three siblings to England to um, get higher education, I mean, to, to get, finish their high school education and then get higher education and then come back to Iran. And then uh, while they were there, the revolution happened and I was in high school. And then when they saw how things are changing and especially um, how the environment for women and girls were uh, kind of being marginalized and changing a lot, uh, my... Uh, parents were not comfortable with that at all at all so that uh two years it took two years a good effort and a, uh, spending a lot of money uh for my parents to through different routes to obtain my passport and for me to be able to leave at the age of 15 uh the country so the plan seemed easy. Oh, we have been to, you know, because prior years we always used to go at, at summertime to visit my siblings. So we spent a couple of months in England. So I traveled back and forth and there was never an issue or never a problem. But then, uh, so we thought that I'll do the same. I'll just get the visa and go to England and yeah. stay with my brothers. And um, so I left Iran at the time. The British embassy in Iran was closed. So the plan was to go to stop by at Paris, go to the British con- consulate uh, to get the visa and then go to England. 
But um, things changed when my request for visa was denied because there was a high number of outflux of especially young people leaving Iran after the revolution, especially a lot of um, boys. And um, so after being stuck in Paris for a month, um, going back to Iran wasn't an option because it took a long time, you know, to, to be able to leave. So right. it was not a quick uh, kind of decision. Oh, let's go back and then regroup and see what we're going to do. But so I was kind of stuck in Paris for, for a month. And then I traveled to Geneva, Switzerland to apply for a visa because my dad had a fr- good friend there. Mm-hmm. And, but my visa was denied there as well. Mm-hmm. And, just at that time, all of us kind of came to the acceptance that maybe I should, you should all think about, okay, maybe my, my life is going to be in, in Geneva, Switzerland. <laughs> and yeah. so I enrolled in language school. And anyway, uh, long story short, I was there for 10 months. And then uh, finally, uh, I was able to get the visa to go to England. And I finished my high school there. And then... Um, applied for a student visa to come to U.S. and moved to to U.S. So, um, wow. and then I can go through the steps in, in U.S. how I moved around. I don't know. I first moved to upstate New York in 1986 and um, lived there for two years and then transferred um, to Oklahoma State University in Oklahoma for two years. And then when I graduated, I got my first job in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I lived there for five years. And then when I got married, uh, moved to Portland, Oregon, and I've been living here for 24 years. So I call this my my home. Yeah. <laughs> because it's the long, longest I've lived in one place. <laughs> so. When you were moving around Europe, did you have a lot of family or support with you, or were you kind of on your own? Uh, in Paris, I didn't know anybody. I barely knew English, just very just uh, yeah. to get by. Um, but the reason I went to Geneva, Switzerland, because my my dad's best friend's older children were were there. So at least I would have some support yeah. uh, in place. And then my um, my brothers would uh, from England would make short trips to kind of, like when I was applying uh, to enroll in a language school, so they would come by and help me, you know, to, to enroll in that. And uh-huh. they'd be settled about going to school and things like that, just help me along step by step. But I was mostly on my own. Wow. Yeah, it was it was quite shocking, given the fact that uh, before the revolution, when my three siblings left Iran to go to England, uh-huh. uh, in the absence of three of them, I was getting three times the attention yeah. and being the youngest of the four. <laughs> so I was being spoiled to the end level when wow. I was in Iran, and then going. I mean, living through the revolution, it was one thing. That was one eye-opening. And then leaving Iran and then living on my own. When my mom um, first saw me in Switzerland after, like, uh, I don't know, seven, eight months that I had left Iran, she said afterwards, she said, I felt that you had grown like seven years yeah. <laughs> in maturity from compared to. So, yeah, it, it, quite, it, was, it was an experience. I wouldn't change it for all. Yeah. I would not change a bit of that because <laughs> I think it kind of shaped me who I am. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So before the revolution happened, um, what was life like for you? Before the revolution happened, it was, uh, as I said, imagine a conservative U.S. Uh, you know, um, town or uh-huh. big city. And so schools would have just uh, like uniforms like here if a, yeah. you know a catholic church right. would have a uniform you know just a set uh, uh, we'd go to school there were private schools public schools we usually um in the high school level uh, or uh, you know middle school high school level uh, going to a private school was uh, you know usually advantaged and if you know families could afford it they would make 
definitely uh, have you go to a private school. So I went to private school and had friends who would go to movie theaters, travel, as I said, to Europe during the summertime, at least for my family. Um, you know, visited my, my siblings, came back, had friends. Uh, um, I would... Um, I would, I would see the older generation, like from my sis, uh, from my best friend's sister, who was like seven, eight years older than us. Um, you know, they would be in a group of friends. They would go camping. They would go, you know, just kind of normal. Yeah. Wow. But in a more kind of conservative right. setting. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so... Now moving on to your experience um, being in the U.S. now. Um, So sometimes it feels like immigrants from different countries, especially depending on um, the country you come from, uh, get treated differently. Do you feel like people treat you differently because of where you came from? Um, I mean, I've have so many different experiences in different places that it's hard to generalize the whole thing right. in one statement or one outcome. I would say, um, like living in Europe, I felt more as an outsider, foreigner, kind of not being able to blend in. Uh-huh. Uh, but in U.S., in large cities like the Salt Lake City, Portland, and um, I mean, having seen Seattle, the West Coast cities, mm-hmm. um, I have felt more part of the community. Once I made an effort to blend in, it was easy to blend in. Uh, people met halfway. Uh, it was easier to be accepted. Once, as I say, you made an effort or pointed out more similarities between the different cultures. Right. And it just made, they were open to what you had to say about your culture but uh, um but in small cities towns uh, i guess in u.s it was a different uh, experience it was more of a try to kind of stay in the background yeah. you know <laughs> not not make yourself too noticeable you know it was you kind of didn't feel comfortable that people were were open to differences or wanted to know about, about differences yeah. um so after being in in portland and being accepted and feeling comfortable and knowing that if if i came uh, across people that were maybe a little bit uncomfortable I always felt comfortable that, that if I talk if I you know explain and you know they, they'll they'll kind of meet you halfway right. so it was comfortable but then uh, I would say post 9-11 it was a different story yeah. <laughs> quite understandably you know um, um, just you know having the I think that kind of a raw experience of the 9-11 and, and Iran being named uh, one of the three axis of evil uh, countries, you know, yeah. it just uh, made people kind of um, take a step back, uh, um, kind of question some of the stuff or, and, and, and I understood that and, uh, um, uh, and you try to give people space and myself kind of time to digest what had happened, you know, and, um, and you give it some years and, 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 you know, once everything settles in and every detail comes out then people come around, but I must say I was a little bit, um, you know, taken by after, you know, 10, you know, 11 years after 9-11 when my son, was in, in, in school, middle school and early high school. Um, he still had to, as a U.S. citizen, you know, he still had to put up with jokes that were hurtful to him. And I think that aspect of it is, um, is I think, where I feel like everybody has to take kind of responsibility of educating themselves about world affairs and not just relying on what's on, you know, news channels and right. pass that education to their children and and um, and um, c- 
kind of um, you know, especially these days, I think it applies even to this day. It's not just you know nine eleven. There's always uh, now with the global setting of I think everything that happens nationally, internationally, they're all interconnected, and we all have to kind of take responsibility of learning what's going on, what's the uh, what's behind the scenes, and try to pass that education to the children and then. Yeah. So, so no, that, absolutely. that's my experience. Yeah. So having lived in so many different countries, do you think it's affected how you view or understand people? Um, most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would not, as I said, I would not change anything uh, in my life that had happened, even though at the time it was a hard experience at a young age. But I think uh, actually it's important from a young age to to be exposed to more differences, to different cultures, to, to um, different experiences. It makes you a more understanding person, makes you more observant, more sensitive you become to people's cultural, socioeconomic differences, political issues, history. It just makes you all around sensitive about all of these issues. But I imagine, I mean, I try to imagine myself if I had stayed in Iran, if I had not experienced a revolution, just reading about things, it's just not the same effect uh, as living it. Right. And I think actually that's... Uh, one of the things I think, I mean, without getting into politics and things, <laughs> but I think really one thing that would help a lot with the current situation is to have, um, I think, the young generation, young people to go through a, some sort of a national service that would force the young people to be exposed to to a different way of life. Yeah. Uh, compared to them uh, their, themselves like if they live in urban area to go to a rural area or vice versa mm-hmm. or going to diverse communities just be exposed to, to it and be comfortable uh, and take that kind of stigma away from things that you hear about the other side other things things that are different you just hear from other people just experience it for yourself and it just opens the eye so much more and I think it would kind of narrow down this gap that uh, gap of divisiveness and inequality and actually misinformation in this day and age is so easy to spread misinformation because mm-hmm. you haven't experienced you haven't seen so it's easy to uh you know shape other people's mind uh and when they haven't seen the different uh so uh, yeah definitely yeah it's it's a big part it should be a big part of to, to the extent that they they can and they can afford just be exposed to difference yeah absolutely so our last question um based on your life experience what do you think it means to be human um let's see what makes us uh be human i think definitely to have more empathy have respect and try to learn and understand our similarities as much as the differences I think would make us better human to be kind and responsible in our actions and behavior be curious want to learn about differences want to learn about things that you don't know instead of being fearful what makes us human is just to make an effort to brighten somebody's day with an unexpected compliment, a smile, a hug, uh, uh, just a kind gesture. These are like simple things that we can go on passing with people we don't know. It And definitely makes a difference on, on the receiving, on the person on the receiving side. And that's the simplest thing I think that makes us all human. race and immigration is a personal one. It's a story of who you are and how you came to be. 
It's a story not only of where you have lived, but of the many people and many cultures that have made you who you are. The more people you meet, the more places you go, the broader your horizons, and the more you come to understand, like Gandhi said, that we all have complex stories that shape who we are. At the end of the day, the concepts of race and nationality are constructs. We've created these ideas to help give us structure and order, control over a sea of complexity. But sometimes I think we let them get in the way of the deeper fundamental truth that at the end of the day, we're all human. Thanks for joining me this week on Human, and check back this Thursday for interviews with Deja McNabb, Gabrielle Goodman, and Wasim Alzur as we take a look at how religion factors into the quest for what it means to be human. Special thanks to Dr. Akash Tiagi, Andy Lee, and Mary Alba for their participation in today's episode, Lee Rosevier for the theme music, and Dr. Jen Scott Mobley, Dr. Tim Christensen, and the ECU Honors College for supporting this project. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, look in the description below for a list of additional resources. And thanks for joining me this week on Human.